Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. I'm my, your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com, JM in the AM.org. Executive assistant of Rummy here in the control booth, and welcome to another Thursday evening on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And we are proud to be sponsored by Beckerman Public Relations, Beckerman Public Affairs, building market leadership and reputation through strategic communications. If you want to tell your story, tell it with Beckerman. And folks, it is getting towards the end of December. And uh, you know what that means. That's transition time in, as we talk in the political slash government world, that's transition time. We're going to move from one administration to another administration, one city council to another city council, as well in certain counties, certain states, they're also going to transition. It's the off year, so it's not as many as the other times, but there's still time to transition. And uh, no transition is being watched more closely than transition of one mayor-elect, Bill de Blasio, the mayor-elect of New York City, and as well as the race for speaker. Not a race in the traditional sense, but a choosing amongst the colleagues of City Council Speakership. And uh, I think uh, it's appropriate over as we head towards the end of December, uh, as we take this week and we take uh, next week and the week after to kind of unpack and take a look, a little retrospective uh, of the Bloomberg years. But also at the same time, we're going to look forward to some of the challenges facing the new administration. And we have a very uh, special guest this evening on the line a, a real policy wonk if you don't if you don't mind me say if she doesn't mind me saying we have Nicole Jolinus from the Manhattan Institute for Policy Research and uh, the Manhattan Institute really became came to the forefront of uh, of the public sphere in the Giuliani days but I think uh, has really established itself as a really thoughtful uh, uh, not necessarily will uh, a think tank that's willing to kind of challenge some of the orthodoxies with regard to urban affairs and the like. Uh, hopefully, Nicole will feel that's an accurate representation as well. And Nicole is also the author of After the Fall, Saving Capitalism from Wall Street, which, of course, is a provocative title. But she is the Saul Freedom Trust Fellow at the Manhattan Institute and contributing editor to City Journal. She also writes about all kinds of authorities in the statewide for the MTA and the like, and she's a keen observer of the fiscal state of New York City and New York State. So, Nicole, welcome to Spin Class. Good evening, Michael. Thanks for having me on, and I think that's an accurate description of what we do. Excellent. Okay, good. So hopefully, uh, I, I like when the guests start off, at least, uh, not offended. Oh. You know, it takes going to take a little while to settle in, and hopefully I can do something that's a little more provocative. Yeah. So, Nicole, Let's let's just take for a second. We're we're ending twelve years of Bloomberg, but it's actually twenty years of Republican mayoralty yep. in New York City. And uh, if if you're call, assuming we're calling Bloomberg a Republican, but we'll I'll put it a different way. It's twenty years since we've had a Democrat, and uh, and Bill De Blasio will probably describe himself as a left wing or progressive Democrat. And he's actually done that on the show, so I feel comfortable saying that. Uh, so we are we are kind of in that interregnum between David Dinkins and Bill de Blasio. I think uh, there has been a, a quite a few things that somebody like you, somebody sitting where you sit, be pleased with on a fiscal basis, on a budgetary basis with New York City. But there are probably also some things in those 20 years that you haven't been so pleased with. So uh, why don't you give us a kind of little recap of uh, how you view from a fiscal point of view the Bloomberg years? Sure. Well, I mean, I think it can be summed up by saying it could have been worse. Um, the 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 budget has gone up about 56 percent higher than inflation. So we've we've uh, increased you know to to a good uh, 70 billion dollar budget over these 12 years. And the biggest growth of of spending has been in public employee benefits, the pension and the, and the health care benefits. These have really defined the budget growth. You know, pension payments have gone from about $1.6 billion a year when Bloomberg took office to about $8.2 billion this year. 
public employee health care costs. That's an absolute explosion, I think. Yeah, and the same thing with health care costs. So now between these two things, you know, $8.2 billion on pensions and $8.8 billion on health care, these two things are about $17 billion a year, a third of the parts of the budget that city taxpayers pay as opposed to federal and state taxpayers. And these these things uh, used to be about 17% of the budget, so pretty much doubled as a share of the city budget. The story then is not that Bloomberg increased programs. In fact, we have 5,000 fewer police officers, fewer firefighters, fewer sanitation officers. It's just that these employee benefits kept growing kind of automatically. And so the mayor's uh, sin was not a sin of commission. It was more a sin of omission, not, not fixing this uncontrollable growth. And this is something that the next mayor, uh, de Blasio, is going to have to confront. Um, you know, we all know that this city's labor contracts have been expired now for up to five years in some cases. City workers want retroactive raises. But the money that would have gone toward raises in a different generation has gone toward these pension and health care benefits. So that's a big, big uh, step for, for de Blasio to, to take in his first few months in office. Well, let me, let me just throw a question in there for you. And to, sorry, because to, there's yeah. just so much within that. What about... The people say that the, I think, uh, with regard to pensions and healthcare costs, right? That's not the mayor. That comes from Albany. The mayor has no control. So when you say it's a, it's a sin not of commission, but of omission or, or of not, let, how, how, what can a mayor do to control these costs? Well, if at all. I mean, part of, and, you know, I, I may not have been entirely fair to the mayor because your, your point reminds me of something. The, what can the mayor do? Partly what the mayor has done is not approve new raises for public sector workers because pensions are based on salary. So the higher salaries are, the higher the pensions are. And the mayor has said we can't afford to give out salary and wage increases, uh, at least since, since the, the, the collapse of the financial markets back in 2008. So in one important way, at least he didn't make anything worse. And But the health care benefits, unlike pensions, those are part of the city bargaining process. The city has some control as one of the two partners you know, between uh, management and labor. The mayor is obviously management to try to work out some kind of reasonable uh, constraints on health care uh, costs. And you would have thought the labor unions would have had an interest in getting these health care costs under control as well. And so it's a it's a place where de Blasio and the labor unions can sit together and say, we both know we've got to get these health care costs down. Let's try to figure something out to get these costs down and share the money in some of the money for future raises, if not for retroactive raises. This is Spin Class, and we're talking to Nicole Jolinas from the Manhattan Institute, and we're kind of assessing the fiscal, relative fiscal health of, of New York City. I, I think one question that many people are, is, that's on many people's minds, particularly these days, is, is New York another Detroit? Uh, people keep talking about the New York State and cities in New York State potentially, you know, declaring uh, bankruptcy. But is that something that New York City would potentially face given these these kind of runaway costs. So when you're when you're talking about pensions, a pension obligation that and healthcare obligations that are increasing exponentially, uh, you know where when is the reckoning? Well, I don't think we are in danger of becoming Detroit anytime soon. You know, the city, obviously, economy is different. We we have a much healthier economy. Young people want to come here because they can find job opportunities here, whether they're lower-skilled uh, immigrants, young people coming to work in the tourism, hospitality industry, or higher-skilled people. You'll come and, and live in new apartments and work in some of these tech and financial jobs. So the, the economy is obviously much better than Detroit, which is really it hasn't replaced the auto industry jobs. Even as we build more cars, we need fewer people to to build those cars. But we need to think about you know can we still hire police officers today, 
and promise them they can work for 22 years and retire in their 40s, and the city will be willing and able to pay for their retirement at half salary, as well as you know when when that person eventually passes away, maybe in their 80s, their surviving spouse lives even longer. And so sometimes you know people can easily be retired for much longer than they worked. Is it responsible to keep making these promises? And when we're spending $8 billion a year on pensions, that's money we can't spend on improving the subways, on maintaining bridges, on building new infrastructure. So, you know, it's just like any any family or any business, you're not going bankrupt, but you keep yourself from going bankrupt by worrying that you might go bankrupt. That's very fair. I think that Probably that's something that the executive branch worries about more than the legislators. Yeah, yeah that's, that's, that's fair enough. I, yeah. From what I've seen is that the those in the legislature are always interested, but well, in New York in particular. I'm not going to comment elsewhere. New York and New Jersey, but uh, in Washington, there's a different dynamic these days. But uh, it, the legislature sees surplus and they immediately want to spend it, and uh, the executives have kind of been hold on. But one thing I, I think with regard to the current administration, meaning Bloomberg, is I I think it's out there that they've kind of spent down that rainy day fund that they had. Yes. Um, back before 2008, you know, this is an example of how it, things could have been a lot worse, and, and Bloomberg did do some good things. We, The city had built up a surplus, say, between 2003 and 2007, because Wall Street was doing very, very well. The city had record growth in tax collections during the credit boom. And, you know, maybe a different mayor would have said, well, let's vastly expand government. We can just spend all of this money. And the mayor didn't do that to his credit. He put this money away in a trust fund that was supposed to be for health care benefits in the future. And then when 2008 came, he spent that health care money, uh, you know, kind of right away on these health care benefits rather than 10, 15 years in the future, which was the original plan. But at least it was something. I mean, we, between 2008 and 2012, the city was able to balance its budget by drawing down on this cumulative $6 billion surplus. And so, you know, he was responsible in doing that, but I, he still should have done more to control these pension and health care costs so that maybe we, we could have spent some of that surplus money on infrastructure or on paying back some of our debt. You know, the city has $80 billion uh, worth of debt. So, you know, did, did the mayor make the best choices? No, but he didn't make the worst choices either. Well, I would just say you're setting the bar rel- relatively low, but uh, <laughs> I, I understand that there's politics involved, so we'll have to, you know, we'll have to take that into consideration. Let, now, let's transition to what Bill de Blasio faces. Okay, so we see it's exponential pension growth, healthcare benef- retiree healthcare benefits, retroactive raises for the unions. Uh, there is you know, five, what is it, $5 billion if, if he gave everybody the raises that they're looking for? Yeah, really mo- more cl- closer to, to $8 billion, really. $8 billion. Uh, maybe okay. uh, almost $4 billion for the teachers and then another $4 billion for, uh, you know, police, firefighters, all the other civilian workers as well. What is the rule of thumb for fiscally, the fiscal impact of a dollar in raise versus benefits? How, what, what is it uh, if you pay somebody a dollar – how much is the ben- how how much of the way of benefits goes along with that? Well, what do you have to budget you or- get once you retire? You'll get fifty cents in pension benefits, and and if you if you retire on disability, as a lot of police officers and firefighters do, you get even more. You you get three quarters of your salary. So, every dollar in in higher income is going to be at least half a dollar in in future benefits for some other mayor to deal with. So now, so de Blasio comes in, he is potentially more cushy with the unions, or maybe not. Some of them endorsed him, some of them didn't. Interestingly, I think some of them that did endorse him, like 1199, are not city unions. Yeah, I think that's a very interesting point that you brought up. You know, uh, sometimes people say de Blasio, will he'll just be a tool of the unions, like the new Boston mayor. But that's not really true. Um, The the teachers' union endorsed Bill Thompson in the primary. Obviously, he he didn't win. Other unions... 
unions endorsed Christine Quinn. Uh, I think the tr- transport union, I believe. Well, I won't say because I'm not sure. Uh, I, I'm not. The TWU sure might have been with one, John Lowe, I think. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, but but the short story is. I know DC 37 was with John Lowe. Yeah, they yeah. didn't flock to De Blasio. He won the primary really without union support. They all endorsed him when there wasn't anybody left. So he really doesn't owe them very much. If anything. Okay, so now let's let's talk about one thing that de Blasio really popularized during his during his uh campaign, and I think very effectively, particularly in the primary, was the hospitals. Right? So he wanted to keep his local hospital, Lyle College Hospital open and uh and SUNY, which is the state you know, state uh, university, said we can't afford it. And I think the hospital loses about thirteen million dollars a day, but it's still open. Um, but there's also the New York City uh, Health and Hospitals Corporation, which seems to be on the verge of uh, of, of some serious fiscal uh, um, issues. Yeah, particularly, I think made even worse potentially by by Obamacare. Uh, do you follow this issue at all with regard to the you know, regard to the to the hospitals and you know how the the state supported hospitals and the city supported hospitals uh, are barely making by getting by? Yeah, I mean the issue is. As a city council person and then as public advocate, de Blasio could go out and protest things and say, well, this, this state can't close this hospital. I'm going to fight for, for, for your rights to have a hospital in your neighborhood. But the reality is the hospital, you know, Long Island College Hospital in particular, it just doesn't have the money to stay open. You know, wealthier patients want to go to Manhattan hospitals or better quality hospitals elsewhere for their care. And inpatient hospital stays are declining. You know, the the goal really is not is for hospitals not to have patients. Any anything that can be done on an outpatient basis or anything that can speed up a person going home quickly is much better for that person. It's just not good for the kind of older fashioned hospitals' fiscal health. So what would be better for Brooklyn, as Bob McManus has written on the City Journal website, is have smaller scale clinics. People could go for day to day health care. People could go for emergency care rather than have you know, a big older hospital that is always going to struggle uh, not to, to lose money. And so it really is a big difference between being an advocate and being mayor. De Blasio has never said where he'd get the money to keep this hospital open. And that's going to be something he'll have to answer you know, over the next, next year or so. Interesting. And he's also going to be in the business of managing hospitals at the same time. I mean, what's what's the relationship between the city hospitals and the city budget? Is it a separate budget? How does that get financed? The city makes a contribution to the public hospitals, but it's it's more of its own independent authority, more like the MTA. The city makes a, a minor contribution to pay for some capital improvements, but it's not really the city's not responsible for for the hospital deficits. Um, so it's it's interesting because in a world of finite resources, in the end, will de Blasio want to spend more city money keeping an insolvent hospital going for a few more months, or is he going to want to spend that money on something else that may do people more good? I mean, look at the libraries, too. You know, de, de Blasio has said... He he doesn't want to to close the libraries. He doesn't want to see the Brooklyn Heights Library and uh, other libraries sold off. Um, and that's you know the, the the libraries really serve much more uh, people and do a lot more good than a hospital that isn't doing is is no longer functioning if, for what the market needs. But you know if you give money to the hospitals, that means less money for the libraries. So he has to make those decisions. So how does one come in and try and reform city government if if there's if you can't close anything you can't restructure anything you can't you can't close a firehouse that might be, not be as busy you can't go ahead and close a library you can't close hospitals you can't you, you kind of got to keep the cost structure as it is and then of course you have this increasingly large accumulated obligation in the form of of health and pension benefits which how do you, how does how does anybody coming in to govern whether actually they be democrat or republican keep uh uh keep keep the road towards insolvency keep off the road towards insolvency well i think the first rule is 
do no more harm. So we may, uh, the, the mayor may have a hard time dealing with pension costs as they are now, but he certainly shouldn't give out any raises that make the pension costs even higher, you know, for 10 years in the future for the for the next mayor. I think there's still a lot of things the mayor can do to make people's lives better, even if it doesn't save a lot of money, especially with technology. You know, if you think about the quality of life problems that kind of chronically plague the city, idling buses in Midtown, why not outfit the kind of worst offenders with automatic governors that send data on how how long and how often a bus idles? And so instead of having spot fines that don't really deter the behavior, let technology really stop this behavior. Uh, police department with both violent crime and violent traffic deaths, which are sometimes crimes as well, put more data out there so that the public can see see what's going on. That's something that, you know, one would hope wouldn't cost a lot of money, but you could look at a clickable map and see how many stops and frisks were there in this neighborhood. What did the police say was the reason for this stop at 7 p.m. on a Saturday night? You'll look at their reports, look at the intersections where crashes are. A lot of ways that the city can communicate better with the public without spending a lot of money. You know, Bloomberg did a lot, but there's still a lot more to be done if if the new mayor wants to really be creative about making people's lives better. So just making government more efficient. I think that, that you, how much money do you, would you say that New York City could save uh, with these types of efficiencies? Because everybody comes in and says, oh, we're going to get rid of waste, fraud and efficiency yeah. and we're going to balance the budget that way without doing anything else. Yeah, well, I mean, to give one example, de Blasio wants to uh, increase preschool spending. So we we already spend about a billion dollars a year on preschool, and he would spend about $300 million more in the rest of his, his half a billion dollar tax increase he would give to after-school programs. But if you look at the existing preschool budget, we spend $100 million a year just on transportation and bus service. And is that really necessary? You know, Bloomberg has started to rebid these bus service contracts and started to save some some real money. I mean, we're looking at hundreds of millions of dollars in savings across the whole, uh, you know, not only $100 million that we spend on busing for preschool, but more than a billion dollars for the whole Department of Education. Um, daycare contracts, homeless shelter contracts, a lot of these things, you know, there's there is the fabled waste, fraud, and abuse. If you take a real look at these contracts and say, is there a better way of delivering better services, let's, let's do it. Amazing. Let's talk for a second. You write a lot about the MTA and the transportation yeah. system and the like, which, of course, I think most New York City mayors are kind of chagrined that they don't actually control the MTA, yet they get blamed for pretty much everything that happens in the transit system. And I think... You know, one thing that was might have been a little bit eye-opening for people was the uh, Riverdale uh, train derailment. Everybody out there saw the governor there, and not the mayor. You know, who knows where the mayor was? But that's not really the question. Is uh, but they saw it. And they said, "Wow, it's just a city thing." Well, it's actually a state thing. Yeah. So, uh, so the mayor doesn't control the transit system yet. New York City is so dependent on transit and the funding of the transit system is not a city obligation either. But of course the long-term health of the transit system is something that's also uh, somewhat perilous. Yeah, that's true. And even though the city doesn't pay for the MTA, city money can make a big difference. You know, we are next summer, um, the city will get its first new subway station really since the Great Depression over on the far west side of Manhattan. They're extending the number seven train from Times Square westward over to, to, uh, uh, the Javits Center over by 34th Street and 11th Avenue. And that will encourage more apartment growth, more office building growth and so forth. And that's something that the Bloomberg administration paid for. I mean, the city took $3 billion of its own money and gave it to the MTA and said, you know, build this thing for us. So saving money and using it for long-term investments in transit, like those type of things, can make a really big difference. If the mayor had decided to 
spend that money on higher salaries or something, uh, you know, even uh, more education spending, then we wouldn't have the subway. I mean, this decision was made almost 10 years ago, but we're just about to see the benefit of it. So if the city, the city can obviously kick in money, but they might not be able to kick in money if they don't have it, of course. And they're, and I think one thing that every mayor will, will certainly, uh, and you see with Bill de Blasio with, with trying to hike taxes, they're really dependent on Albany for just about anything and any type of tax and all these, you know, potential transit improvements and the like. Albany really controls that, uh, through, through the MTA. Uh, so, Going into looking at the state finances, which I think that in an election year, that could be – you also have a legislature that wants to spend more, particularly on the assembly side, versus a governor that seems to be – that is that came forward with a tax commission that seems to want to cut taxes. Uh, you know, where do you see – and New York State has also been uh, on the fiscal brink as far as – well, not necessarily insolvency, but certainly uh, had some yawning uh, budget deficits. So what's what's the relative health of New York State these days? Well, the state is even more dependent than the city is on Wall Street. So because the city has a property tax, income tax, and sales tax, so it's kind of like a, you know, a, a more diversified mix, whereas the state doesn't have a property tax, so it's much more dependent on the personal income tax. And in turn, it is the wealthier people who make money on Wall Street and pay a disproportionate share of the income tax. So I think... The big risk for the state is that you have a Wall Street downturn, and everyone will remember we didn't really reform the state budget as much as we should have. Instead, what has happened is Wall Street has done well. Profits have come back and kind of given Governor Cuomo a little bit of a break. Now, what happens when the Fed raises interest rates and Wall Street profits start to fall back a little bit? You know, the state will have the same problems that it's always had, you know, the Medicaid spending, uh, it's just property tax rebate spending. Um, and then, of course, it's its own uh, mandates that it puts on on local governments for things like pension payments that smaller cities and towns uh, around the state pay doesn't show up on the state budget, but it really is pushing up the property taxes in in towns and cities around the state. Let's also not forget about all those authorities out there, right? And you follow those. And a lot of little authorities, you know, the MTA, the big, big authority that everybody knows, but there are thousands of little public authorities that have taken on their own debt. Uh, you know, and, and for example, look at the Tappan Zee Bridge project. We're going to get a federal loan to build the new Tappan Zee Bridge, but at some point, even though it's a loan or it, from that the has federal to be paid government, back. it has to be repaid with higher toll revenue. Right. So this is Spin Class, and we're talking to Nicole Gelinas from the Manhattan Institute. We're sponsored by Beckerman, Beckerman Public Relations. And with regard to something like the Thruway Authority, okay, they're going to go billions of dollars into this into this uh, new Tappan Zee Bridge, and it's a great project. Everybody loves it. It's going to be uh, everybody's going to be happy with it. But eventually, we got to re- repay that money, right? I mean, and that, and eventually, the well kind of run, runs dry and the, the pension obligations that exist in the city are not are not just at the city level they're also on the state level and those grow at the same time so and all these authorities also have all their debt obligations i mean new york state just has a has a massive debt right now yeah it, and uh you know debt continues to grow partly because pension health benefits crowd out operating spending and so if you want to repaint a bridge or you you want to do a you know build a school or something you have no choice but to borrow money and interest rates are at record lows so we're we've been able to borrow money for things like the third water tunnel uh, very cheaply and refinance existing debt so we actually save hundreds of millions of dollars a year by refinancing debt at lower levels but at some point interest rates will have to go up and that's that's another risk that the next mayor faces so just to get back to the initial discussion and you know as we just wind down this discussion yet with regard to detroit right detroit went is going through now a restructuring and one of the things that's on the table is these future pension obligations i don't know if retiree health care benefits are on there as well but uh but certainly pension obligations and a lot of the a lot, obviously, organized labor or public labor is very apprehensive with regard to this. 
and there is this uh, I'm sure every every union throughout the country, but particularly in New York are probably looking at it, certainly in a lot of upstate cities that are more fiscally distressed. Uh, is there a possibility for coming to some kind of bargain with public employees prior to some kind of fiscal, fiscal insolvency on the part of uh, public institutions in New York? Well, I certainly hope so, um, but it does take leadership on the part of the municipal labor leaders. You know, for months and really years now, all the labor leaders have said is the the problem is the mayor. You know, Bloomberg doesn't want to do a deal with the unions. He he doesn't appreciate the city workforce enough, and and so on and so forth. But the problem really is the fiscal situation. The city just can't spend this amount of money on pensions and health care benefits. At the very least, these costs mean that salaries and wages just won't go up because, again, the money for raises went to health and pension benefits. So there needs to be you know, more leveling with the union membership, that this isn't a short-term thing. It's not just because Wall Street did poorly for a couple of years. In fact, Wall Street has done very well the, the past few years. There are real permanent changes that, that need to be made. And frankly, the best person uh, you know, besides the labor leaders, the best person to say these things is a Democratic mayor because no one really listens when a Republican mayor says it, especially a billionaire Republican mayor or a billionaire independent mayor. Okay, so I guess from what you're saying is uh, this is an opportune time for Bill de Blasio to be coming into office. Yeah, and he, you know, he could surprise us because again, he didn't get the labor unions endorsements until very, very late in in the race, and the progressive movement in the country right now really isn't focused on better benefits for very well-paid public sector workers. It's about minimum wage, about improving job conditions for retail workers, uh, all kinds of things going on in the private sector. Not so much, you know, the New York City worker who retires at 50 with a guaranteed generous pension for life. Um, Of course, we should pay the benefits that we promised, but we have to think about changing these things for new workers and, frankly, changing the health care benefits for everybody. Okay, Nicole Gelinas from the Manhattan Institute. Thank you for joining us here on Spin Class. And uh, we hope as uh, the de Blasio administration moves forward, we can get some more of this cogent analysis. Thank you very much. Thank you, Michael. Have a good evening. Okay, you too. This is Spin Class. Uh, you're talking politics. I'm your host, Michael Fragan. We're sponsored by Beckerman Public Relations, BeckermanPR.com. And I want to welcome... Our second guest onto the show, uh, gonna look at a little bit more at the smaller picture, but a different type of picture. We have Aaron Weeder on the line from Rockland County, county legislator representing the 13th legislative district in Rockland County, I believe encompassing Spring Valley, the village of Spring Valley, and possibly, uh, some other, other spots. Uh, Aaron, are you there? Welcome to Spin Class. Good evening, Michael. Thanks for having me on the show. Uh, you are absolutely correct. Uh, District 13 uh, it, it encompassed uh, Spring Valley and a little portion of Muncie. A little portion of that, that big city called Muncie. Okay, well, you know, Muncie's one of those places that's kind of small on the on the regular map, but probably in our amongst our listenership is probably very large. One of those, you know, when you see those big cities out there, uh, it's probably like Shanghai, you know, the uh, or, you know, you know, in well, uh, Beijing, you know, the, the, with millions of people, well, Muncie, of course, looms large, even though it's a little bit of a smaller, unincorporated hamlet. The unincorporated town of Muncie uh, is 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 a is a nice portion of of the town of Ramapo, but in the Lexington of of you know people throughout, Muncie means Spring Valley, it means uh, Wesley Hills, it means the Fourche area. It's the entire area. Uh, of 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 the upstate uh, New York of uh, of uh, the Jewish community. So, just to give you a little personal connection, there is that my father went to Spring Valley High School and actually grew up in the village of Spring Valley. So, if he sp- still was living there, you would be representing him. So, well, on Ellis Parkway. Okay, very good. And you're also a former school board member of the East Ramapo School District, as well as a special or as an assistant to the mayor of Spring Valley, the former mayor. Yes, that is correct. I was a former school board member in the East Ramapo School District. I was the vice president of the board 
and then the president of the board. And I was a confidential assistant to the mayor of Spring Valley for two years. So there's no shortage of of excitement wherever you are. I think well, that that's that's fair to say political excitement. Absolutely, uh, so a lot of things have happened in the uh, course of five years that I've uh, jumped into politics and and then taken on a new direction in my uh, professional career. Okay, so let's get started just for a second, because you know, one of the reasons I, I wanted to have you on is precisely because as a Hasidic Jew, you're, it's a, it's, hasn't been generally done in the community, uh, and I'm talking about, let's say, whether it's Curious Yol or a New Square or, or at the like, that, uh, or even in Lakewood, for kind of county level or state level elected officials to come from the Hasidic community, even though they probably had the votes to to elect people to office. Well, that is correct. Uh, the general understanding for years has been that uh, out of sight, out of mind, that the Orthodox community, and primarily the Hasidic community, are much better represented by. Uh, uh, a non-Hasid, a non-Jewish person, if you will. Um, and, and in that way, uh, you know, we're, we're not so conspicuous, uh, we, we're not noticeable, and we could go on and live our, live our lives uh, in our heritage and tradition and so on and so forth. Uh, the reality is that the uh, Hasidic and the Orthodox community has uh, grown tremendously, and um, it's no more out of, out of sight, out of mind. Uh, I think uh, that um, because we, we grew uh, so much, and uh, given the, uh, the difference of appearance, uh, given that, especially in the Hasidic community, uh, people don't speak the English language, um, and there's not much interaction with the outside community, you know, other than, uh, you know, the business world. Uh, many folks outside the Orthodox and Hasidic community look at us, uh, you know, uh, from afar, and they don't really understand the community. And, you know, in former years when we were, we were uh, you know, smaller, we weren't so noticeable, it, it wasn't an issue. I think that the, the, the uh, amount of tension and misunderstanding um, uh, can, can much better be addressed when we elect a Hasidic person, I cannot tell you how many times uh, people, uh, not from the Hasidic community, uh, you know, uh, non-Jewish uh, people in Rockland County, came up to me and they thanked me for being involved in, in politics, uh, and and sort of, uh, you know, be uh, an ambassador for the Hasidic community, and have the conversations, and and then be able to to show a, a side of the community, a more of a human side. Uh, and, and bring it a little bit closer to the outside community. I think it's it's important, uh, and I think that uh, it needs to be done on a much greater level. So you would advocate electing additional members of the Orthodox community to uh, to elected office? A- absolutely. It's got to be the right person, as with every elected official, you know, of course. Uh, but uh, in, in my experience, in my experience, uh, being an elected official from the Hasidic community with the appearance of a Hasidic person who could go out there and have a conversation and sit on a dais with other elected officials and be involved in the process, uh, it, it humanizes a Hasidic person. Um, and uh, this is something which is extremely important in this day and age. I ran for... I ran in a primary for the New York State Assembly, Democratic uh, primary. There was about a year and a half ago, and I lost. Uh, in that process, uh, this this also um, uh, this is this was the primary reason why I ran. I was pushed to run, believe it or not, by non-Jewish people who said, "Listen, Aaron, um, you know, it, it it doesn't feel good to not like the Hasidim, and and you've made a difference." Uh, and, and, and it should be done on a much greater level, uh, such as a statewide uh, uh, elected uh, position as an assemblyman. Well, there's no question these days that the Orthodox community in the Hudson Valley and 
primarily, I guess, uh, the Hasidic community, whether it's in Rockland or in Orange or in Sullivan, is a hot potato issue. And I think there's there's no and you know hot potato just sounds so juvenile as a word, but that's that's really just what it is. I mean, there's no other good way. It's uh, in fact, I think of this recent Orange County executive election, you had both candidates, the Republican and the Democrat, although the Democrat was certainly more vociferous in our opposition to to Kyrgyz Yol, uh, but the Republican as well was kind of condemning or at least uh, on record as opposing expansion of the Hasidic community in the Hudson Valley. I think a lot of our listeners who, you know, who may be New York City focused don't realize a lot of what's been going on out there. But how... How and then of course there's the East Ramapo School District, which is in the news on a, on a consistent basis. And you were as you were a vice chairman of the board there. So where at what point will the will every election stop being a referendum on the Hasidim? And of course I meant to mention initially was the was the Rockland County uh, county executive race where the Ramapo, where the issues in the town of Ramapo were first and foremost and possibly uh, led to the victory of the Republican uh, at day. But we can leave that one aside, I guess, from a more specific as kind of a follow-up question. So let's just take the general question at first of, you know, when, at what point, there seems to be this referendum on there amongst, in politics, in general politics. Do you like the Hasidim? Do you not like the Hasidim? I hate to put it like that. Uh, but... Uh, and you know, how do we get away from that? You are absolutely correct that, unfortunately, this is becoming more pervasive. This is what election, elections come down to on, on, on a local level. It's not anymore about Democratic or Republican values. It's more about uh, a single-issue referendum, and mostly in upstate New York, you know, uh, because of the percentage of the Orthodox and Hasidic population, it became a referendum on the Hasidic community and the, and the, and the Orthodox community. Uh, the question is, when is it going to stop? And you know, it's, 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 it's a very, very uh, complicated uh, question uh, to, to, to have an answer just, just like that. I mean, do people think uh, I, that the Hasidim or the, the firm community out there is just going to pick up and move if they, it, somewhere else? Well, is well, that, that the that, idea? That, that, that is not going to happen. Uh, the census shows that there's a tremendous amount of growth in Ramapo, uh, as opposed to the five uh, neighboring towns in Rock, uh, the four neighboring towns in Rockland County, where uh, it, it was uh, it was uh, stagnant, and some of them were even uh, had a decrease of population. Uh, the Hasidic community uh, is not going to just pick themselves up and go because they don't have uh, the ability and they don't have where to go. This is our place. This is uh, this is where we call home. Uh, I, I think the answer. Uh, on a uh, a broader scale is uh, this is going to stop when the Hasidic community and the uh, from community and the leaders, primarily the leaders, uh, are going to realize that we have an issue that needs to be addressed. And that's a very simple issue. The issue is public relations. As I said before, um, you know, when you think of it this way, and I always tell this to, to, to friends of mine, if you if you drive down, down the Palisade Parkway to, to drive into the city, okay, and and you drive erratically, uh, you, you 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 don't use your uh, uh, blinkers to, to to change lanes and so on and so forth. Immediately, whoever sees that can 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 see that it's a Hasidic person because the way you appear, and they project that feeling on, upon the entire community. And that's why people have to be extremely sensitive the way they behave uh, when they interact with, the, with, uh, with people of, of the non-Hasidish and non-from community. Uh, and there needs to be an outreach, if, an outreach if, you, if you will, a public relations. As I said before, when you have a, an entire community, and I speak with people on, every day, where, you know, people, in, 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 not in the Hasidic community, uh, and, and have conversations, and, and, and you tell them about the community, you tell them about the people, and, and they're surprised because they don't understand the community. They never speak to people in the community. People don't, uh, you know, interact. There's, there's no assimilation. 
you see this entire uh, community, you know, grow. You, you don't understand the community because you don't speak the language, and, and you see them from a distance. Of course, a lot of people will be concerned when they hear things about the community not verified. You have a very small group of haters, and it's in every community where you will have this core group of people who hate and so on and so forth. And when they uh, dispense all these, uh, uh, you know, rumors and, 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 and innuendos about the Hasidic community, uh, people that don't know the community uh, will, will, will believe these things. So we have a public relations issue. When I was on the school board, I've advocated to, uh, to, to, to do much more outreach in public relations but I was only one term on the board, and I wasn't able to do much. Uh, you know, when I was on the school board, I did a fundraising for the uh, East Ramapo marching band. We had uh, people donate from the Hasidic community, donate money so they can buy uniforms for the marching band. Um, when I was in, 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 in the Spring Valley uh, uh, village, there was the uh, earthquake in Haiti. We fundraised a tremendous amount of, 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 of resources, close to two, $300,000 worth of medical, medical supplies and money to send a team of Haitian nurses and firefighters down to Haiti. And we made that a collaborative effort between the Hasidic community and the Haitian community. Uh, and I think we've done a tremendous amount of outreach in that sense, but it's a very, very small drop in the ocean of public relations needed in the in the in the Orthodox and Hasidic community. So before, <clears throat> I, I, two issues I want to address, uh, I guess, with our, I guess, as fundamental issues. And I, I think one of the things you're, you're kind of preempting with regard to the East Ramapo School District, because certainly what's been put out there, and uh, there are a number of, of, certainly of writers in the media who have gone out of the way to profile the East Ramapo School District, which, uh, of course, is has is very unusual, uh, to say the least, demographically, amongst public school districts. But that's, I guess, one thing out there is that the the Orthodox community is out there to destroy the public schools. Uh, but that conflict just seems to be unsolvable because there just doesn't seem to be all that much interest in funding the schools to the tune of the amount of taxes that most suburban school districts uh, seem to get. I mean, that, that, you know, having five to 10% tax increases every year, which is, uh, or though there's a tax cap these days, but you can also get out of it. But, uh, but so clearly the, the Orthodox community is not going to support that. And that seems, you know, if you don't support that, you're kind of a traitor to the public schools. And the, so where, where does, where does that conflict, uh, how, how does that get solved? Well, uh, the East Rampo uh, conflict and issue is something that is very near and dear to my heart because I've been on the school district and then I got involved because I wanted to make a difference between, uh, you know, the various communities. Uh, and, and that's also something where uh, there is so much disinformation out there, okay? Now, let me tell you this. Uh, first and foremost, the tax increase in East Ramapo, uh, the property tax increase, the school district portion of the property tax, uh, has been increasing throughout the years, um, uh, Alongside uh, the neighboring school district, uh, with with more or less the same the same amount, uh, the problem that we have in East Ramapo is that there is no political will, and again, it's 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 a public relations issue when you have all these facts out there, which is not true. Uh, the problem in East Ramapo is that there's a major injustice done to the public school of East Ramapo, and 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 that is by the state, uh, by the, uh, the local representatives to the state, not doing anything to, justif- to, to, to rectify the issue. Uh, the way school districts are being funded throughout the entire state and, and throughout the country is some portion by local taxpayers, and, uh, and, and the, the additional amount is being funded by the state. Uh, now, about 70% of a, of a school district's budget is being raised 
by the local taxpayers. About 30% is being funded by the, by the state. Now, the state doesn't equally fund every school district. A wealthy school district will get less money. A poor district will get more money from the state. Now, East Ramapo is considered one of the wealthiest school districts in Rockland County and throughout the region, and that's ridiculous because the way they came to this formula of how to gauge a district if they're poor or wealthy is completely distorted by the fact they take the amount of public school students versus the property value of a school district. There's other factors in it, but this is... Right, and because the there's the percentage of public school students is so low, therefore you have a very skewed number when the that, overall number should be much. If, if, they were to, if they were to include or some portion of the private school population, because there are many, many services that the local school districts are mandated to provide to the private schools, so they certainly have to take into account when they come to a, a wealth ratio of a school district, um, East Ramapo would get their fair share and be able to provide uh, almost every single program that were, that, that were cut in the last couple of years, which, by the way, have been cut from other school districts in, in Rockland County. But given the fact yeah, that you have a private school, so-called private school board members on it, um, you know, on the school board, this, you know, every little issue in East Ramapo uh, is, is, is being highlighted in the way where any other district doesn't, doesn't, doesn't get that attention. So you have the issue with the, with, with the formula change that no one really wants to address. No one wants to address. When it comes to federal funding, such as the lunch programs and other title funds, East Ramapo is considered one of the poorest districts in the region because the federal government so it's the state, has a different it's the, way It's of, the state of, formula that's, that's penalizing. So if that could just be fixed, a lot of the conflict would, would go well, away. Not, not, not a lot of the conflict. They will completely, completely take away every little conflict there is because the difference between uh, a wealthy school district and a poor district uh, is in East Ramapo, Will come out to to the amount of about fifteen to twenty million dollars, and 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 they will be able to put back every single program that was cut, and even more so. And then let me tell you this: when I was on the school the school board, we have increased well, not we have increased we have introduced full day kindergarten, which is not mandated, where the district didn't have full day kindergarten at all. We have increased it to seventeen classes. Um, the uh, the uh, the graduation rate have increased throughout the entire duration that I was on the school board, and the last couple of years that uh, the board was controlled by a so-called private school parent uh, uh, members. Uh, whereas the ten years uh, before I got on the board. There was no full-day kindergarten programs or other programs that we, we brought into the district, and the graduation rate decreased. All right, so uh, we're talking here with Aaron Reeder, the, representing the 13th legislative district in Rockland County, Village of Spring Valley, parts of Muncie. And I, I just want to transition for a second to get down to the Rockland County executives race, because that was a surprise for many people out there that a Republican won that seat. Uh, it was certainly expected by a lot of pundits out there that it was going to be won by the Democrat David Friedman. There was also a huge, from what I understand, turnout in amongst the Orthodox community for David Fried. And in fact, David Fried won on the, the Democrat. If you look at just Democrat versus Republican, he won. Uh, he won more votes on the Democratic line than did Ed Day on the Republican line. But Ed Day won about 8,000-plus votes on what is known as the Preserve Rockland line, and that was perceived by many people as an anti-Hasidic line. And uh, now you're in the legislature. You have to kind of go forward and work with Ed Day, and I think the community does as well. Uh, did he run on an anti-Hasidic, anti-Orthodox platform? There was clearly, uh, this election was a referendum on the Hasidic community. Uh, whoever you speak to, uh, on any side of the issue, and any, in any, in any member of any party, 
uh, will admit that this was a referendum on the Hasidic community. Uh, and this is uh, extremely unfortunate. Uh, there's no doubt that, uh, you know, Ed Day, who's been a county legislature. Right. He's, uh, you, should, you guys served together, correct? We, we served together in the same body. Uh, I know him well. I'm looking forward uh, to be working with him as a county legislature. Uh, Ed Day is going to, county, uh, you know, county elect Ed Day uh, is going to, county executive elect Ed Day is going to have to uh, work with the legislature as much as the legislature is going to have to work with him. In fact, the Democratic Party is going to have a veto-proof legislature come January 1st because um, his seat his seat will be vacated, and we will appoint, in all likelihood, a Democrat because the Democrat, the Democratic Party has uh, the majority in the legislature, and, and in that way we will have twelve. Even though he's a Republican, he is a Republican. Yes, that's uh, that's the rules. But that's just the way politics works. That's the way uh, politics works. That's the way you, the law. You know, you, this is what the the law and the stature and and our. Uh, it wasn't criticism, just a question. Well, that, yeah, I understand, but this is uh, this is uh, how our charter, uh, you know, the uh, county charter has been has been uh, uh, you know introduced uh, many many years ago. So we get to a point, and the Democratic Party has the majority, and they're going to appoint the Democrat, which, by the way, uh, is going to have to run, I believe, in uh, come. You have to run in the next the, election. So they're going to be, you know, the, the Republicans will have a chance to take back that seat. Be that as it may, uh, the the uh, Democratic Party still has the majority, uh, and and including we'll, we will have a veto-proof legislature for the next couple of months. So, uh, in short, the the county executive is going to have to work with the county legislature, and the county legislature will have to work with the county executive. We will have to find common ground. I think that the referendum was there, the election is over, uh, and there's, you know, uh, all the issues that were talked about in the election, such as zoning and developments, uh, which is the issue that the preserved Rockland and the preserved Ramapo Party has 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 been advocating for years to slow down the growth of of Ramapo, uh, is not something that the county executive really has uh, much uh, to say. Right, that's mostly uh, on a town level. It's a town and a local level. So, Aaron, we're almost, we're almost out of time, so I want to get two quick questions in there. And uh, number one is, and we're talking to Aaron Weeder, 13th Legislative District in Rockland County. Uh, number one, was this election a wake-up call to many people in the Orthodox and Hasidic communities that, they, that the turnout was so huge, and generally, if that's the case, they can kind of determine the, the election, but yet their candidate lost? Uh, It certainly was a wake-up call, but to everyone it was a a different wake-up call to different people. I think it remains to be seen how uh, the county is going to move forward in the next uh, term, um, which remains to be seen. And in that that sense, uh, uh, people might get uh, another wake-up call. Okay, I guess we'll have to stay tuned. And the second question is with regard to specifically the Village of Spring Valley elections. My understanding is that the Vision Sareva specifically said that a from person should not run for mayor in, in the Village of Spring Valley. Is that accurate? Uh, I don't think uh, it was the Vision Sarebi. I think okay. it was the Vision Sarev, which is the Vision Sarebi's son. Uh, I, don't, uh, I don't recall uh, him saying specifically about the mayoral race. But uh, there are, uh, there is this, this, you know, the, 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 there certainly is, and it's not only in Vision, it's there's many, many uh, Hasidic communities, as we started out uh, in this interview, who right. believe that a Hasidic person shouldn't run for office. I think uh, there can be a distinction between a legislature position and an executive position. Whereas an executive position, uh, such as a mayor, county exec, town supervisor, um, you, you kind of are the ruler of the municipality. Whereas if you're a legislature position, uh, such as myself, 
you're simply a member and a representative of a certain area in a greater body. Whereas throughout history, there were many Hasidic rabbis and rabbanim who were representative, such as in the uh, Polish uh, parliament. Sure. And Rene Shapiro, again, who was a representative and a legislator in a greater body. Okay, Aaron Weeder, the county legislator for the 13th Legislative District in Rockland County, New York, representing the village of Spring Valley. Aaron, really, thank you very much. A very interesting conversation. I hope to continue it again soon. And I thank you very much uh, for having me on your show, and I'm looking forward to be on again. Fantastic. This is Spin Class. We're winding up another Thursday night here, sponsored by Beckerman, Beckerman PR.com. And just a closing thought, uh, it looks like the Paul Ryan slash Patty Murray budget deal uh, might actually have some hope. That means that could give us actually some hope that the extremes no longer can hold the entire country hostage to government shutdowns. And I think, as we said uh, before, we criticized those in Washington for not being able to come together. There is we have to praise them, especially Paul Ryan. Unexpected coming from his quarters, but I'm a big Paul Ryan fan. I was beforehand. I continue to be, and I think the man actually is a a really understands what government needs. So kudos to Paul Ryan and Patty Murray for getting a budget deal done. Hopefully that will go forward and we will have some hope uh, that Washington can end its dysfunction. And that's it for here. I'm getting the evil eye again. We are out of time here on Spin Class.